This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast, sort of a literary podcast today, something a little bit different for a special guest, Kathy Lett. Hello, well, the mouth from the well, south is here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome um, Thank you. back to Sydney, Kathy. Do you, do you spend a lot of time here these days? Oh, yeah. I boomerang back to Botany Bay about three or four times a year now. Okay. Yeah, now the kids are older, I can escape and come back. It's just, I, I love Australia. I mean, especially Sydney. It's just the most glorious place in the world. Yeah. Best, Australian women are the world's best kept secret. Funny, frank, feisty, fiercely loyal. And, you know, what's not to love about the boys, especially when they're in their budgie smugglers? <laughs> I'm a Cronulla girl. Now, your most recent book, your 16th, uh, Best Laid Plans. Yeah. Now, you did the sort of the author tour here earlier this year. Yeah. Um, you're back again. You did the Canberra Writers Festival on the weekend. Yeah, which was wonderful. I did three gigs. I did the, um, the press gallery. The, the Press Club, which was yep. really wonderful. We talked about women in the media. And, and uh, that was on ABC TV. They broadcast yeah, it, I think. I, yeah, I think the men in the audience were ovulating by the <laughs> end of that session. And then I did my one-woman show. I'm doing a one-woman show now. Uh, and that, was, that went really well, a lot of laughter. I do sort of feminism, funny feminism. Yep. And then uh, last night we had a girls' night in with Jean Kitson, Jane Caro, and Maggie Allison, and um, and Jamila from Melbourne, and that was also riotous. So I think we we tried to get the arts minister up on stage and distribute naked and cover him whipped cream and lick it slowly off. So it was that kind of evening. But it's really good for women to behave badly. You know, we're still always told we have to be so good and so polite, and you know, it's still a man's world. We don't have equal pay. We're getting seventy five cents in the dollar and you know we're getting concussion hitting our head on the glass ceiling and we're supposed to clean it while we're up there so well i think we're allowed to blow comedic raspberries at blokes until we get equal pay i think that's fair don't you yeah you've been very strong on this and i I really love that and you would have seen the big fuss in the the bbc recently when they released all the details and they came out and said yes well we're working towards equal pay and but is there anything stopping them from doing it right now well i know i keep thinking if it was if it was you know, black men, Jewish men, Muslim men being paid less systematically across the board, it would be a national scandal, be on the front page of every paper every day until it changed. I think we should do what they did in, in um, Iceland. The, it's only a small population. There's only 500,000 people. But they, the women went on, didn't have equal pay. They were sick of agitating for it, not getting anywhere. So they went on strike. They had a national strike. No, the nurses, doctors, teachers didn't go in. The mums stayed at home, didn't take the kids to school. Um, the whole country fell apart. They got equal pay passed in Parliament the next day. So yeah. I think, yeah, we just need to well, get more feral. All this working towards its bullshit, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> oh, no. Just, just do it. I know, go, <laughs> we should go down to Canberra and throw tampons at Malcolm Turnbull <laughs> until it happens. You know, it's not going to happen otherwise. Also, we need men to join us at the barricade mm. because I've been saying the same things as a feminist since I was a teenager and still hasn't changed. So until men say, yeah, this is really embarrassing – Oh, I think there'd be plenty of takers, wouldn't they? I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm sure. Right. Exactly. Uh, and then, sorry, well, I could go on about feminism all day. I was going to say, it's not as though women are asking for a lot. Equal pay, yes. We'd like men to help us more at home because even though women make up 50% of the workforce, we're still doing about 99.9% of all the housework and the childcare. 
Um, and it's in men's interests, you know, because it's scientifically proven that no woman ever shot a husband while he was vacuuming. So come on, boys, <laughs> get with the program. Well, have you, have you, did you have a book called Home Cooking? Or No, I had a book it? called How to Kill Your Husband, right. Another Handy Household Hints. And one of the things, is, the, the description was home cooking is what men hope their wives are doing. Oh, yeah, home like. cooking is where men think their wives are. Right, okay. Is that it is, yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what stage are you at with Best Laid Plans? It came out earlier this year. Yes. It, it's published here, the US. How many countries do you go to these days? Um, best laid plan so far is in about 10 countries, I think. Okay. And also, I am really proud of it. It's had, it's probably had the best reviews of any book I've ever had. I don't mean to be dropping my own name, but it is a, a book that's very close to my heart because it's about a single mother's relationship with her autistic son. And I have an autistic son, so I completely wrote this book from the heart. I put my pen in my own artery. Uh, and the way it came about is that, you know, whenever people with special needs are depicted in the media or on, in popular culture, they're always kind of pitied or inspirational. No one ever talks about their normal human urges and needs. And so sexuality with people, you know, the issue of sexuality and special needs is like a taboo subject. I couldn't find anything in literature that, would, that spoke about that. So um, when I started writing Best Laid Plans, I thought, gosh, you know, it's very unusual for an author to be stumble across a topic that, that has never been um, d portrayed in a novel before. And I did use some of my own experiences because, for, I mean, for anyone listening who doesn't know what autism is, it's a lifelong neurological condition. Its chief characteristics are an inability to communicate, socialise, often chronic OCD and anxiety, but also often a very high IQ. I call my own son Wikipedia with a pulse. I mean, I don't know if you've got anyone in your life who's autistic, but you, you might have because it's, it's one in every 60. It's not always diagnosed, right? No, it's one in every 68 people. So, you know, if just think about your, your fathers, your brothers, your husbands, um, you know, your sons, if they're plane spotters or train spotters or they put their records in alphabetical order in an anal way or they're f football fanatics or they're emotional no, I, bonsai. I, I, I you have to a put, few of those boxes. Yeah, or do, do you? I don't think you do. You're very emotionally articulate. No. But if it's one of those guys you have to whack the fertiliser on to get any feelings out of them. Okay. Engineers, computer scientists, you know, there's a very good chance they're on the spectrum. It's called an extreme form of maleness. Mm. So um, the reason I wrote this book is, first of all, for all parents, when your kids start dating, it's a psychological minefield because my generation had to leave home to have sex. That's why I left home at 16. You know? But now we let our kids have sex at home over the age, you know, over the age of consent. It mean, makes for some very awkward moments over the muesli in the mornings because you never know who's going to appear. But when you have a son with special needs, you know, turn the angstometer up by 100 because it could be who they're going to bring home. could be animal, vegetable, mineral. You just don't know. And, and the other area I wanted to explore is that uh, because autistic boys in particular, it does affect boys much more than females. Of course, there are autistic women, but also they're often they're better at hiding it because women are more socially, you know, adept. Um, they get endlessly rejected because for girls their own age, they're too quirky. I mean, Jules might as well have been a sherbet-winged flamingo flying <laughs> down the high street. And that endless rejection erodes their confidence to such a degree. I mean, you'd need a microscope to find my, my, my son's self-esteem. It was so limbo low. I always say it was lower than Kim Kardashian's bikini line. <laughs> and so when he was about 20, 
I seriously did consider taking him to a prostitute, which is a drastic thing for a feminist to say, you know. Mm. And and I thought, well, how will I do this? So, so first of all, I, I thought, well, I can't take him because – as a, imagine the mother sitting outside the door at a brothel. It's like paging Dr. Freud to reception. <laughs> and then I asked my male friends if they'd take him and they all said no because it was like, oh, let me just run that past my wife, shall I? You know, does the <laughs> word divorce mean anything to you? And then I asked my female friends and they were kind of horrified that I would condone using a sex worker. So in the end, I found myself driving through the red light district of London down near Liverpool Street Station you know, with prostitutes who were street walking, thinking I'm going to pick one up. And I thought, well, this is not my natural habitat. You know, my natural habitat is, is a book club or a quilting bee or the cheese counter at the <laughs> deli, you know. So I didn't – I sort of panicked and went home. And But a couple of weeks later, I read about a father of an autistic boy who was arrested – curb crawling to pick up a prostitute for his son and I went to court you know I thought oh my god that could have been me I thought that's actually a brilliant opening for a novel middle class middle-aged mum arrested curb crawling to pick up a prostitute for her autistic son and it was and all the comedic chaos that ensues after that it's like a Kafkaesque comedy but um you know, so I always try and write my books and make them funny and pacey and page-turning, but with a serious theme running through, always feminism, but this time also this this dark theme of autism runs through the book. Tell me, I want to ask you about the, the life of, uh, of a novel beyond the book itself. The, but the, um, you, you draw heavily on your, your life for most of your books, I think you've said. Sure. It, yeah, only write because it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so Merlin is pretty much Julius, your son. He definitely – it's not a documentary, well, no, but definitely no, but inspired by yeah. the, the tr- the, all the many extraordinary experiences I've had with him, yeah. So how much is, is a view is there in Lucy? Ah, interesting. Well, I think Lucy, Lucy, the mother – when you have a child with special needs, the, the hard thing is cutting the psychological umbilical cord because autistic kids particularly suffer a lot of bullying. 60% of kids with autism report serious bullying as opposed to about oh, 11% of the neurotypical community. But, you know, when he was when my son was about nine, he came home with a sign sticky tape to his back saying, kick me, I'm a retard. Now, as a mother, you might as well no. have <laughs> pulled my heart out good, of my yeah. chest and stomped on it. And he's saying to me, Mum, the kids are calling me a retard. What is a retard? Am I a retard? I mean, it's heartbreaking. But, you know, how you be, you become very overprotective. Like, I would never let my son out of the house without a list of instructions longer than war and peace and enough in his backpack to set up a comfortable wilderness homestead. <laughs> But how will you ever know if they can cope in the outside world if you don't let them out into it? But Lucy is a very overprotective um, mother, but she's not as feisty as I am. I mean, I'm much more bolshy and, and stroppy. She's she's more gentle and self-deprecating and uh, a, a little bit more at life's mercy than, than I. But it gives me more comic potential because the underdog is always – it's always funnier to write about an underdog. Whereas, you know, I would tend to use men's testicles as maracas <laughs> if, the, if, if so required. Not that I would ever use your testicles as maracas because you're <laughs> obviously a gorgeous media love god. Just why we're bonding here in the studio. So tell me, the um, but, but I gather you and Lucy would, would um, treat the autism not dissimilarly. Like yes. You take it front on. 
Yeah. It's it's always talked about. It's and it's often it's a source of rich humour. Oh, that's for, true. for both the characters, it seems. Well, I remember when when I wrote um, the first book I wrote about autism, the boy who fell to earth. I remember one of the critics saying, oh, "How how could uh, the author be humorous about this subject when it's such a serious subject?" Because anyone who has a child with special needs knows that if you can be funny about it, it's like strapping a giant shock absorber to your brain. <laughs> if you can laugh at something, you take the sting out of it. And of course, parents of special needs kids, when we get together, we laugh hysterically about the various things that happen. Because autistic people have a literal, lateral, tangential logic, which is truly original, fascinating. But they also have no filter, so they say whatever they're thinking, which means I always say that socially I sweat more than Donald Trump doing a Sudoku because I never know what Jules is going to say. And uh, this is the sort of humour I use in the book, Best Laid Plans, because, for example, when I took Jules to Downing Street, I always tell this story, but it, it perfectly illustrates the social dilemmas. When I took Jules to Downing Street when he was about um, 14, 13 or 14, to a charity event, I introduced him to Tony Blair and I said, oh, Jules, this is the Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And Jules said, oh, yes, you're the one my mother calls Tony blah, blah, blah. And I'm going... <laughs> You know, well, I did not know what to say. And then I took him to another function. There was a, a woman there called Anne Whittacombe. She was a very hatchet-faced Tory politician. And I introduced him and he said, oh, yes, you're the one my mother says is two-faced. But if so, why are you wearing that one when it's all wrinkly and crinkly and old? Once more, I'm like, who is this child and why is he calling me mother? You know? <laughs> so it's that kind of comedy which is is rich and authentic and disarming and, and fresh, which is what's going to make Best Laid Plans such a brilliant TV series. It's unexplored territory. How often can you say that about a TV series that it hasn't been done before? Well, hold on there. Back up a little bit. Now, TV series, what, what's going on? What don't we know? Oh, well, <laughs> Best Laid Plans, I've just um, – sold to Fremantle, uh -huh. who are the most innovative and exciting company. And they're also very good at female-led drama. So I couldn't be in a happier home. Um, we've been brainstorming story ideas today, and it's really, really exciting. Well, and talking about casting. And I'll be driving around town with a casting couch strapped to my <laughs> roof racks. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> so that, that gives me a whole other rich area to explore then, because you've – You've sold rights probably for virtually all of your I books, have. of most of them. I have. But maybe, you know, a third to half of them actually get up because mm. they go into – often there's long – I guess movies is a little bit more challenging than TV series. The, mm -hmm. the turnaround time for movies can be years, can't it? But also I had such a bad experience on one of my films, Mad Cows, that I bought my rights back from a lot of people. And that's the film that. with Joanna Lumley and Anna Friel. Anna Friel. And Joanna, uh, Anna Friel is sort of playing me with the worst Australian accent you've ever heard. It's like <laughs> Dick Van Dyke doing the Cockney accent at Mary Poppins. <laughs> the, the cast were very good, actually. It's just the, the script was disappointing. And it, it was it, when you have a book that's made into a bad movie, it's like seeing your own child raped by Cossacks. I mean, there's <laughs> it's just horrifying. And I did buy back the rights after that. But I've sold – I've you know, I've made quite a lot of money over the years from selling rights that, to people and it wasn't made. I mean, Scott Rudin bought the rights to Alter Ego for three years running for $100,000 wow. a year and it was never made. <laughs> I sold a project to Harvey Weinstein. You know, I've, I've, I sell everything. 
Um, and sometimes it's better for them not to be made, <laughs> as Mad Cows taught me. But Puberty Blues was a very good experience. We, that was a f- terrific film made by Bruce Beresford, although I sold the rights to that for $500 with no escalation clause. I did see a quote once, and I'm not sure. It might have been the Telegraph in the UK where it said you got screwed on. Oh, yeah. I had, I had an agent. And was that, was that talking about the film rights, was it? The film it? rights. Because yeah. the film rights were sold before the book was finished. Right. Uh, and the, obviously, the agent didn't think the book had any, any, you know, creative um, legs, and so he cut them out from under us. So, th- but then it was made into a very successful twenty-hour TV series, which was excellent. And Southern Star were terrific, and they let me tinker with the scripts and give storylines, and they were very inclusive. I, uh, it enabled me to bring back some wonderful Australian vernacular. Um, into the mainstream, rack off your fish face mole. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, he's titting me off. And a few other <laughs> classics like that. It's radically Shakespearean. <laughs> so that was a very happy experience. So, And, and I know that Be- the Best Laid Plans is going to be a really um, rich and rewarding collaboration. I'm really excited about it. Without wishing to delve into your personal finances too much. <laughs> so do you... Uh, First of all, I guess I'm interested, do you like to be creatively involved or sometimes do you just sell it and go, look, take it, do your best? It depends. I won't work with when you I or, sold or... Girl, Girls' Night Out to Harvey Weinstein, um, I, was, I wrote the scripts for that. But with every script, it was getting worse because I was getting notes <sighs> from nameless, from faceless people in Hollywood. And it was like the creative process backwards. You know, I kept thinking, these notes are terrible, but I had to incorporate <laughs> them. And in the very end, after about 14 drafts, I was so peeved. I just sent in the original script I'd done and I got a note back saying, this is excellent. I was like, oh, I can't cope with this note. <laughs> you know, the lovely thing about when you write a novel, there's just you and mm. your editor and that's it. It's a very intimate relationship. But, of course, in the movie world and the TV world, there's so many people involved. That's why at, now at my age and having had so many experiences in the movie industry, good and bad, I only work with people I really like so that I know it's going to be okay. – Creatively rewarding, emotionally rewarding, intellectually fulfilling. So you sign off on any deal. That's, yeah. that's part of it. Your agent knows you've got to be happy with the. Definitely. With the well, deal. I mean, we've had we had other offers for this book, but yeah. I wanted to go with Fremantle because I've I've sold them. I've sold Fre- another of my projects to Fremantle in Britain. I know the company. I like the company, and I know that they'll be very inclusive. So that will keep me um, happy with the okay. end product, and it's worth it. Yeah. So if they they buy the rights. And that you get that money whether they make it or not. If the project gets made, yes. is there an upside as well? Do you oh, get to share in the – Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there's absolutely. more to come. Yeah, that's And depending right. on the success or is there a flat – because you hear lots of people, you know, going, oh, the Hollywood accounting system, it's a shocker, you know. <laughs> this movie can run for years and just barely break out. Well, that's another reason to go with a <laughs> reputable company like Fremantle. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Okay. The um and just back to some of the characters in um do you who drinks more, Lucy or uh, Kathy <laughs> Kathy Lett? Oh, we do. It, we do love our card, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I was out with my, some of my Australian friends last night, including Jean Kitson. And, uh, yeah, we, we definitely watched the tide going down in a few bottles. <laughs> well, it's, it's mum juice, isn't it? It's nature's penicillin, yeah. really. Yeah. So, and especially I always say when I'm doing talks on autism around Britain or Australia, you know, and the mothers always say, what are your, what's your, what are your top tips on how to survive with a child when you have a child with special needs? First of all, I always say, um, Build up their self-esteem because, you know, their, their self-esteem just becomes so minuscule, as we mentioned earlier. Also, feed their obsessions because you never know where it will take you. Autistic people are very obsessive. We know with diagnostic hindsight that Mozart, Einstein, Orwell, Van Gogh, Steve Jobs, probably Bill Gates, <laughs> a lot of other scientists, musicians, artists, we're all on the autistic spectrum. Um so feed their obsessions. And the other thing I say is um, drink a lot of alcohol. <laughs> yes, you will need sometimes to crawl into a wine bottle. But getting back to the obsessional thing, you know, with my own son, he wanted to be an actor. And I was like, how can you put the artistic into autistic? It didn't make any sense. But then I thought, actually, autistic people are acting every day. They're acting trying to be normal. So I enrolled him in an acting class. I used to go and watch him and I'd think, um, I just think, you're really good. And I thought, oh, it's just the mum goggles, you know, I'm seeing everything through the love filter. But then he, he won two little awards and then he made two little tiny films and then he got cast as an actor in a big BBC medical drama called Holby City. And it's the first no, time well. the BBC have cast an autistic actor to play an autistic character. So it's been quite groundbreaking. And he was only supposed to be in for one storyline. He's in with terrific actors, Gemma Redgrave, Catherine Russell, Hugh Quashie, who all came up through um, the Royal Shakespeare Company and RADA, etc. And he's, it's been so successful. They've kept him in for a year and a half now. Wow. He's got a new storyline just coming up. And that's done more to take the stigma out of autism than a million dry documentaries because the audience can emote with the character. So and I'm hoping Best Laid Plans, the TV series, will do exactly the same thing. And, you know, just teach people to think outside the neurotypical box. And I don't want autistic people to try and, and be normal. Just let them be their best autistic selves. Why can't we celebrate people's idiosyncrasies, eccentricities and differences? I mean, how boring life would be if we were all the same. I call my own son the garlic and life salad. And it would be so bland without him, a case of the bland leading the bland, you know. <laughs> so why can't we just celebrate this in people? Sure, sure. A couple of other film projects, I'm not, I don't think they got off the ground. The uh, Emily Mortimer was going to be in something once. Um, oh, but the boy who fell to earth. Was yes. it right? That, that that was the that was a move. They sold them that movie, that book, to be made into a film, but it was taking so long. You know, it was in it was in various stages of development that um, in the end, I've just I just kept took the rights back, so I've got them now. Yes. And we might we might um, we might use some of that book as backstory for for best laid plans okay. because it's about what happens when you when your child is first diagnosed and it's about lucy trying to date men and how her autistic son accidentally sabotages all of her relationships because he's so frank <laughs> and says things that are misinterpreted and and too revealing and there's a lot of comedy in that so we'll probably use a lot of that book as as backstory and and extra um material for best laid plans okay and i've heard you say miranda hart might be making something yes right. I, yes that's very exciting um Fremantle in in britain have bought a book i wrote called uh to love honor and betray and it's a fish out of water comedy about a, a british 
mum of two who comes out here to be with her husband only to discover that he's having an affair with her best friend. And uh, she, her children make, and they're living at Cronulla, and okay. her children make her take up surf lifesaving. You can imagine <laughs> Miranda Hart, you know, <laughs> running up the beach in one, one piece. Trying, she can't really even swim, you know. So as she gets her bronze medallion, it's kind of a metaphor for her learning to swim, not sink, but swim, that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, that's with Fremantle. So we're, we're working on that project right now as well, which is yeah, really exciting. should do well because I, I saw her here at um, – she toured a live show and that was all sold out. Oh, she's brilliant, and, yeah. And um, was it call the, to call the, mid, call the midwife? It's yeah, oh, yeah. She, so she's, a, she's a very – I a think rare, she's moved on from that now. It's a rare combination to have an actor who can be hilariously funny but also, you know, profoundly emotionally moving. So that's kind of a rare combo and she can definitely do that. And that book's about – really, it's also about – the dynamic between a mother and a daughter um, because living with a teenage daughter is like living with the Taliban. You're not allowed to laugh, <laughs> sing, dance, wear short skirts. You know, whenever mm. I'd, I was, when my daughter was a teenager, I'd be going out, I'd get down to the front door and I'd open the door and if she heard me, she'd come running after me and say, what are you wearing? Go back to your room. You're not going out dressed like that. So when I give talks, um, um, when I'm on book tour, I always say to women in the audience, if you've got a daughter who goes feral in her teen years, if she ever kicks you and hits you and says, I wish you'd just die, just take a big drag on a cigarette <laughs> and a big gulp of wine and say, I'm doing my best, darling. You know? <laughs> um, I'm interested in your writing process and your, the, the creative um, stages you go through. The comedy in your stuff is, is um, it's just permeates every page. <laughs> the, um, how hard do you work on that and how much of it sort of just comes? Well, oh, often if, I, if I'm out at a dinner party or I'm with my girlfriends and I say something that they laugh at, I do write it down. <laughs> I think, oh, God, I must write that down and use that later. Right. But also I think that's how women cope. You know, I think there's a big difference between male and female humour. I think male humour um, – my male friends are very funny. I call mm. it the black belt and tongue foo. <laughs> but they tend to sell – to tell set jokes – as a way of getting close. Women never tell set jokes. I would never say to my girlfriends, did you hear the one about the, you know, the Irish homosexuals, you know, ingrown toenail or whatever. I just, we don't do that. Our humour is very, very cathartic. It's very uh, confessional, anecdotal. We strip off to our emotional underwear in about 3.6 seconds and it's a psychological striptease that reveals all and it's incredibly candid. Men would be shocked if they knew what women talk about when they're not there. And that's all I do in my writing. I write down the way women talk when the blokes aren't there. And also I think I, if I have any gift at all as a writer, it's putting into words what women are thinking but maybe not necessarily saying out loud. You know, for example, Girls' Night Out, which I wrote when I was 24, which I'm just reissuing at Christmas time, actually called After the Blues. All right, so yes. it's sort of picking up some of the characters from Puberty Blues. I wrote that long before Sex in the City and Lena Dunham and all of that, but it's, it's kind of similar terrain, but it was outrageous at the time. That book was banned in New Zealand. Can you believe that? <laughs> Which the New York Times used as their, as in America, the publishers splashed that all over the cover, you know, banned in New Zealand, girls night out. So, and I do think that women, that is how we, okay, I can back it up. Scientifically, because um, you know, scientists say that laughter comes from the oldest part of the brain, 
uh, biologists tell us that laughter is very good for you. It you know, releases all sorts of endorphins. And anthropologists tell us that women laugh more than men in all cultures on the planet, especially in all female groups. <laughs> so you know, it's a way that we survive. It's what I was talking about earlier about strapping the giant shock absorber to your brain. Mm. It's a way of, of coping with misogyny and raising teenagers and juggling you know, work and career and trying not to drop anything and being the butt of God's biological joke, starting with period cramps to childbirth where you stretch your birth canal the customary five kilometers to mastitis and then the menopause you know when everything goes quiet you suddenly grow a beard mm-hmm. you know hello <laughs> we do have a lot to cope with and laughing with it is the best way so that's what i try and reflect in my novels but i mean it's everywhere i mean every page has great gags even the detail the the <laughs> The chapter names are very funny, standalone by themselves, you know. Well, I just like to – I have to amuse myself you, or I wouldn't But do you have – like I remember a doco on Joan Rivers. She had a room full of filing cards and everything written down and carefully – do you do anything no, like that? No, do you, I, just, I, I don't. It's a lot more freeform. I don't do that. I, John Mortimer once told me, he said, as long as you've got the opening line of a novel <laughs> and the last line, right. you know where you're going <laughs> and just – Head towards it. Yeah. But I do plan out – I do kind of plan out the emotional trajectory of each character because it's like writing a bit of chamber music. All the strands have to, you know, loop in in the end. And I like a lovely satisfying end. I like a big major chord at the end. Maybe a little minor minor chord in there, just a little bit of sweet moment. But I do like a, I do like a resolution to my novels. So, and I also think that it's, it's – Literature, I think, has a job to be uplifting and to, to you know, people always say that you, to be profound you have to write about death and, and tragedy and it's much harder to be funny and uplifting, <laughs> you know, and I don't think optimism is an eye disease. I don't. So, and I, and I do think that's a gift you can give your readers to, is to give them some entertainment and amusement and also, you know, tug their heartstrings, pith, Wit and poignancy, that's the combination I like the best. Pithy, witty and a bit of heartstring twanging. You're very prolific. It's never more than, I don't know. Two years. Two I years, do one every two years. Two years, okay. Yeah. So just give us a little insight into the process. Do you dictate? Do you hand? Do you type everything? What 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 happened? Well, I just go out and have a lot of fun for, <laughs> for months and I know I've got a deadline and I, I swing off a chandelier with a toy boy between my teeth for a few months with the girls and then I suddenly panic <laughs> and then I go into literary purder and I go into kind of lockdown and start writing uh, and that's a wonderful feeling when the pressure's on because then you, the book becomes more you real You thrive under the pressure, the, the yeah. deadline that you're someone who's motivated by it. It makes deadline. you go into that that creative pressure cooker and and that is a great feeling when the world you're creating on the page is more real to you than the world you're actually living in. It's hard to explain to people that aren't writers. It's totally intoxicating and enchanting when you're in that mode. It's, of course, it's awful when you start editing and then you hate it all and you want to <laughs> rip it up and start again. But there is a lovely, lovely time when you've concocted this huge symphony of characters and they're all in harmony around you it's really and you mourn for them when you finish a book you really miss them so the lovely thing about having a tv series made from a book is that you can you can live it all over again and you can you can relive it and 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 breathe and resuscitate it and put creative defibrillators on it and bring it all back to life again and that's a great great if you're with the right people it's a great process yeah the um how many hours a day would you write when you're in that sort of um, 
pressure cooker. When you're in the pressure cooker, you write, you just you break off to sleep a few hours and that's it. You know, <laughs> right. it's really, really interesting. You're not one of these people who does every day from, you know, 6 a.m. till 9, no matter what. And well, it's interesting. I, d- I do think that any woman who finishes a novel, any mother who finishes a novel should just get the Booker Prize because it's so <laughs> much harder for us. Because yeah. all the male writers I know, they go to their, their writing room and their wives bring them up little sandwiches and they go, shh, daddy's work, a genius at work, shh. And if you're a, a mum with kids, you know, you, 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 you're writing – whenever you get a spare second, you're writing. You know, when you, when you rescue the, the babysitter who's being dragged up the stairs between the teenager's teeth and you've bailed the other one out of jail and you've taken – remember to get the other one from the dentist and, you know, juggle, juggle, juggle. But remember Cyril Connolly wrote that book called The, 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 the Pram in the Hall is the Enemy of Promise – I don't believe that actually because a lot of my women friends who don't have children, they constantly have writer's block. I don't have time for writer's block. I have an autistic son and, I mean, my daughter's 24 now, but when mm. she was smaller, you know, whenever I had a second to be creative, it was such a, a joy to get to my desk and shut the door. So I, and I think I've been much more prolific than my women friends who don't have children because I don't have time for angst. You know, I just keep, keep – and I love to be at my desk, so – yeah, and you've, you've got to finish it, haven't so you can go off to the next domestic drama or whatever. Well, and also so I can get back to the Savoy and swing off a chandelier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you've, I think you've, I've heard you say too that when you're working on a book, you often get the ideas for maybe the next book yes. or two books' time. It's true. They you, circle in your mind like planes waiting to land at Mascot a bit. Do you strictly go from one to the other or do you sometimes have two or three ideas on the go and I've, where are you at now i've tried that but it, no it gets too confusing the <laughs> wrong characters pop up in the wrong books but i do keep notes i've been keeping okay. notes on the next book for quite a while now so i'm just about to sit down and read all the notes and then shape a shape a storyline out of it okay so according to your schedule then that should be 29 <laughs> early 2019 will be out that's exactly right <laughs> absolutely yeah i'm going to write about the um the next phase of a woman's life because i do think women for life women's is for for women life is in two acts and the secret is surviving the interval which is menopause but the second act women have a second act now where once we didn't but now you know we're living so much longer with hrt etc we can go out and conquer the world. So it's. I think it's an interesting area to explore and it hasn't been explored enough in literature. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Oh, getting back to the menopause, mm. another brilliant idea I had for in Best Laid Plans, there's a – she when I was – and this came from real life. When I was driving back from the red light district, having nearly picked up a prostitute and thinking, what, have you, what are you doing, woman – I had this brainwave. I thought, who are the most um, sexually voracious people I know? I thought it boy, it's boys in their teens who, with autism who are priapic because they never get a girlfriend. And it's women, post-divorce, post-menopause taking HRT who want their last hormonal hurrah. And I thought, why can't I put these two groups together? Right. So I want to invent an app and sell it to Mark Zuckerberg called uh-huh. um, Or Tinder, or Tinderism, <laughs> or even, this is even better, square pegs for round holes. Come on, what's not oh. to love about that? Because the other interesting thing about autistic boys like my son, 
they are not judgmental. He doesn't suffer from ageism or facial prejudice. If he meets a woman and she's witty and sparkly and twinkly and, and dynamic, she can be in her 60s and he'll just think she's a smoking hot babe. Well, how fabulous is that? So, you know, older women need to just start dating autistic boys and we can well, all live happily ever after. There's been a few awkward um, books and movies about love between younger people and older people, hasn't there? If it's an older man, it's very much frowned on, isn't it? But if it's a, a woman, it's not so bad, but it still sort of can be awkward, can't it? Well, in real life, it's the other way around. I mean, look, look, Trump's wife is 24 years younger and nobody raises an eyebrow. Macron mm. is married to a woman 24 years older and it's a huge scandal. Mm. And everyone keeps talking about her wrinkles and you know, how appalling it is. So it's, it's completely unfair. So, um, you know, no one ever talks about mutton dressed as ram, do they? <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah, I think it's time we redress that balance with or Tinder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I don't want to get down a whole new um, uh, rabbit burrow here, but the, the whole PC movement, you sort of – there are things about it you sort of like, but you seem to sort of – be very un-PC in lots of the things you write and the way you talk and how do you deal with all that? <laughs> well, look, political correctness evolved for a good reason. It's because, you know, especially for women, we were always being, um, you know, we always felt we were being uh, treated badly and and in, in very sexist fashion. For example, I can talk about the very first job I went for in television in Australia when I was about 21. I already had a book out, I had a column in the newspaper, etc. But in my at my... Um, when I went for the interview, there were about five men in suits sitting opposite me and one of them slapped $10 on the table and said, I bet I can make your tits move without touching them. <laughs> and I just went, well, okay, whatever. He leant over and mauled my breasts and said, ha, 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 you won, there's the $10. So I immediately said, I bet you 20 bucks I can make your balls move without touching them and kicked him between the legs. Okay, I got the job, but, wow. you know, what a job interview – now, today, you'd have a sexual harassment suit. Mm. But in those days, jail, we just had to, we, women had to just strap on a bulletproof bra and cope with that kind of larrikin mm. misogyny all the time. So I understand where political correctness came from and why we need it. It's to protect people who might not be as, as, uh, as feisty as me. <laughs> and I'd learned to be feisty because I'd grown up with those Neanderthal surfy boys who, who were so horrendously sexist. Their terms for sex were rooting, tooling, plugging, stabbing, poking and meat injecting. <laughs> Wasn't it exactly a Shakespearean love sonnet. But, but talking about political correctness now – uh, humor's about insult a lot of the time. <laughs> so if you take all the insults out, you, it's all going to be a little bit, a little bit too, um, you know, middle of the road and bland for me. But um, my characters do tend to push the envelope a little bit. But the interesting thing about writing an autistic character, like in Best Laid Plans, because they say whatever they're thinking, it's it does make for this hilarious comedy because they often say what everybody else is thinking but doesn't say out loud anymore. So it's, it's, it is, it's a comic minefield. It's just the most fun to write. And I did take a lot of notes from my own life, yes. Okay, look, uh, Kathy Lett, Best Laid Plans, Fremantle Media Australia, working on a um, TV series. It's going to be wonderful. 
How long are you back in Australia for? I'm ricocheting back to, to Blighty tomorrow. Okay. Because I'm doing my one-woman show, darling. Right. All no, I've seen a, You've done a few early this year and you're back on the road. I'm back on the September, road. You know? I know. <laughs> I was really worried doing a one-woman show. There'd be more people on stage than in the audience. <laughs> but luckily that hasn't happened. And Canberra was a great sellout too. It was really fun. It was just to hear the – because when you're a writer, you know, you're in your room on your own. You actually hear people laughing at your, at your quips to give them a a bit of quitlash is really gratifying. Do some things work better than others and you make a mental note, okay, that this works, I could explore that one and maybe not this one? Absolutely. So and it's, do you like that sort of I live do. feedback? And yeah. I'll be trying out a lot of um, this material I want to use in my next book. I'll try it out on, on the road. Not that I'm a stand-up, for God's sake. I'm just a writer who's occasionally funny. Yeah. It's better to be that way. <laughs> yeah. But I'll be back at Christmas for two and a half months and oh, we'll wonderful. be working. I'll be working with Fremantle with the writers on the scripts. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really exciting. Exciting. I couldn't be happier to have found a home for this project with this company because they get my humour, they understand the terrain, they're really passionate about bringing diversity into the, into into the into a mainstream project. It's 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 bliss so far, absolute creative bliss. Best of luck with it, and um, Thank you. really appreciate um, getting some of your time today. Thank you, and may you always be well laid. <laughs>